Deuteronomy chapter 30. I'm going to read uh, a portion of Scripture, actually most of, uh, well, much of the chapter. I don't know about most of it, but much of the chapter. And tie into some things that we've been teaching about the last uh, number of weeks. Let's start reading in verse 8, Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 8. It says, And thou shalt return and obey the voice of the Lord, and do all his commandments which I command thee this day. And the Lord will make thee plenteous in every work of thine hand, in the fruit of thy body and in the fruit of thy cattle, and in the fruit of thy land for good. For the Lord will again rejoice over thee for good as he rejoiced over their fathers. Now this, uh, this phrase, rejoice over thee for good, uh, the, uh, the Jewish Bible, the complete Jewish Bible says he will rejoice in doing good for you even as he rejoiced in that for your fathers. So that's what he's talking about, rejoicing over you in good. Uh, it's interesting that uh, the Bible tells us to rejoice in the Lord, uh, but the Bible also tells us that God rejoices when good things, he gets to do good things for you. We know what makes us happy. Here's what makes him happy. Verse 10, if thou shalt hearken unto the voice of the Lord thy God to keep his commandments and his statutes which are written in this book of the law, and if thou turn unto the Lord thy God with all thine heart and with all thy soul, for this is the commandment which I command thee this day. It is not hidden far from thee, neither is it far off. It is not in heaven that thou should say, who shall go up for us to heaven and bring it unto us that we may hear it and do it. Neither is it beyond the sea that thou should say, Who shall go over the sea for us and bring it unto us that we may hear it and do it? But the word is very nigh thee, in thy mouth and in thy heart, that thou mayest do it. You may notice that these are the scriptures that Paul uh, quotes over in uh, Romans chapter 10 when he's talking about the word is nigh thee, even in thy heart and in thy mouth. That is the word of faith which we preach. This is where he got that from. Verse 15, See, I have set before thee this day life and good and death and evil. In that I command thee this day to love the Lord thy God, to walk in his ways, and to keep his commandments and his statutes and his judgments, that thou mayest live and multiply, and that the Lord thy God shall bless thee in the land whither thou goest to possess it. But if thine heart turn away, so that thou will not hear, but shall be drawn away and worship other gods and serve them, I denounce unto you this day that you shall surely perish, and that you shall not prolong your days upon the land, whether thou passest over Jordan to go to possess it. Verse 19, I call heaven and earth to record this day against you, that I have set before you life and death, blessing and cursing. Therefore, choose life, that thou, that both thou and thy seed may live. I want to talk to you this morning on choosing life. Now, um, We've been talking about the life of God and speaking about uh, that for a number of weeks. And we've talked about the resurrection life. We've talked about the life that Jesus had in him. He said in uh, John chapter uh, 5 and verse 26, he said the life that the Father has, he has given in the Son to have in himself. Uh, he said in John chapter 10 and verse 10, I am come that you might have life and that you might have it more abundantly. But the, the Bible tells us, Paul wrote to the church and told us that the Old Testament is given to us as types and examples. Types, meaning a picture of what belongs to us as far as the blessings of God are concerned under the new covenant. Things that they didn't have, but things that we do have. Things that are fulfilled in the new covenant by the work of Jesus. And examples, not only of things that we should do, but things that we shouldn't do. Now, someone once said that the simplest rule of Bible interpretation is threefold. First, who's doing the talking? Secondly, who are they talking to? And thirdly, what are they talking about? 
And I think that's a, that's a good rule of thumb that'll help you in just about everything regarding the Bible. So let's talk about that regarding those three principles talking about this. Who is talking? Well, this is Moses, but he's inspired by the Holy Ghost. So we could say this is God talking to us through Moses. Who's he talking to? He's talking to the children of Israel after they've wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. What's he talking about? He's talking about how they can walk in blessings rather than the curse that their fathers, the previous generation, experienced. You may remember a little bit of the story, and that is that uh, the children of Israel came to the promised land and uh, sent 12 spies into the land. The, the 10 spies came back and gave an evil report, what the Bible identifies as an evil report. And as a result, the congregation, the whole of the children of Israel, believed that evil report. They very simply said, we can't do what God said we can do. That's what the Bible identifies as evil. Taking sides against God's word, in other words. And so they spent 40 years in the wilderness. Now, 40 years later, Deuteronomy 30 comes around. Most of the book of Deuteronomy is Moses' farewell letter, or farewell address, I guess it would be better to say, to the children of Israel. He's not going into the promised land. The Lord's revealed that to him. He's going to go up into the mountain and, and stay there and, and, uh, and die in the mountain. Joshua is going to be the leader of the children of Israel to take the promised land. And so he's warning them. He's giving them admonition. He's giving them warnings. He's giving them encouragement and advice on what to do so that they don't make the same mistakes that their fathers, their mothers and fathers did 40 years before that caused them to walk in the wilderness. Now, I want you to turn back with me to Numbers chapter 13 because I want to get this in context. I want you to see what does it mean, and, and really this is what I'm talking about this morning or a desire to talk about this morning, and that is choosing life. Choosing life. How do you do that? Well, if the Bible says that the Old Testament is an example for us, then it should show us not only what to do but what not to do if we're going to choose life. And notice it's not God that chooses it for you. So much of the church world, at least in the way they pray, seem to indicate that, that, you know, God, we pray and sometimes God answers yes and sometimes God answers no. Well, if that's the case, then God's picking winners and losers. If he's picking winners and losers, then he can't be a respecter of persons. If he's not a respecter of persons, then the Bible is a lie. Now, people get uncomfortable when I say things like that. But, folks, that's just the way it is. The Bible is the Word of God, and it is true, completely true, start to finish. Or it's the words of man and not the words of God. And if it's the words of man, how do we know we can rely on them? So it's either true or it's not. If God is a respecter of persons, then the Bible is a lie. So he can't be the one picking winners and losers. Notice he said, you choose life. He encouraged you. To, for you, the individual, to choose life. Life and death is set before you. Blessing and cursing. It's your choice. He's given you a hint. Choose life. Numbers chapter 13 shows what their parents did. Um, we'll start reading in verse 1. Numbers chapter 13. And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Send thou men that they may search the land of Canaan, which I give unto the children of Israel. Of every tribe of their fathers shall you send a man, every one a ruler among them. In other words, these are men of renown, men that will, whose words will be trusted. And it tells the names of all the people that win. I won't go through all the names. I'd mess them up pretty good, I guess. Uh, one thing that is interesting, though, is the meaning of these names. Most of these guys don't live up to their names. Most of these names are things like fortune of God and deliverer and strong man and stuff like that. And they were everything but what they were named. Except for two of them. 
verse 17. And Moses sent them out to spy the land of Canaan and said unto them, Get you up this way southward and go up into the mountain and see the land, what it is. And the people that dwell therein, whether they be strong or weak, few or many. And what the land is that they dwell in, whether it be good or bad, and what cities they be that they dwell in, whether they be in tents or in strongholds. And what the land is, whether they be fat or lean, whether there be wood therein or not, and be ye of good courage and bring of the fruit of the land. Now the time was the time of the first ripe grapes. In other words, grapes are just coming into season, I guess. Now, I want you to notice that they already know that people live there. Keep that in mind. Moses said, go see what kind of people are there. He didn't say, go see if there are people there. He said, go see where they live in. Do they live in tents or do they live in cities with walls around them? The possibility is either way. They're not going to know about that. They know people are there. They just don't know what the condition of the land is. They don't know what the condition of the people in the land are or would be. But they know that there's somebody there. That shouldn't be a surprise to anybody, should it? But that seems to be the complaint later on. Verse 22. And they ascended by the south and came into Hebron where certain children of Anak were. I'll let you say them. I don't have any idea. Now, Hebron was built seven years before Zoan in Egypt. And they came into the brook of Eskel and cut down from thence a branch with one cluster of grapes. And they bare it between two upon a staff. And they brought of the pomegranates and of the figs. The place was called the brook Eskel because of the cluster of grapes which the children of Israel cut down from thence. And they returned from searching of the land 40 days. In other words, they were inside the land of Canaan for 40 days, came back, and they went and came to Moses and to Aaron and to all the congregation of the children of Israel under the wilderness of Paran to Kadesh and brought back word unto them and unto all the congregation and showed them the fruit of the land. And they told him and said... We came into the land whether thou sentest us, and surely it flows with milk and honey, and this is the fruit of it. Nevertheless, the people be strong that dwell in the land, and the cities are walled and very great. And moreover, we saw the children of Anak there, the Amalekites dwell in the land of the south, and the Hittites and the Jebusites and the Amorites dwell in the mountains, and the Canaanites dwell by the sea and by the coast of Jordan. And Caleb stilled the people before Moses. Stilled means to quiet, it, to quiet them down. Folks, if you're ever going to hear from God or get direction from God, you're going to have to get quiet. The devil speaks in a loud clamor. God speaks by the inward witness and in a still small voice. Caleb stilled the people before Moses and said, Let us go up at once and possess it, for we are well able to overcome it. I want you to notice that nothing that has been said about the cities... The, the condition of the land, the walls that the people live in, the big walls and that kind of thing around the cities, none of that is sufficient to stop Caleb from saying, we can do this. Keep that in mind. He sees the same thing. He was one of the twelve. He sees the same thing that the other ten said or, or saw. But he comes back and he says, yeah, that's what, uh, that's what we saw, but let's go quick. We can take this place. But the men that went up with him, said, we be not able to go up against the people, for they are stronger than we. Notice right off the bat what they're judging their potential by. Notice what they're limited in their possibility thinking by, what we can handle. Folks, let me let you in on a little secret to the story here. You're never going to see the things of God manifest in your life if you're counting on you to bring them about. 
if you're judging the size of your enemies against you as being whether or not you can be successful, you might as well pack up now. Because if we're honest and we look at what we can do, that's really not much. Verse 32, And they brought up an evil report of the land which they had searched unto the children of Israel, saying, The land through which we have gone to search it is a land that eateth up the inhabitants thereof, and all the people we saw in it are men of great stature. And there we saw the giants, the sons of Anak, which come of the giants, and we were in our own sight as grasshoppers, and so we were in their sight. Notice what the evil report identified. The evil report said, our enemies are greater than us, so we can't do this. That's what the Bible calls evil. They didn't come back telling dirty jokes. They didn't lie. They told the truth based on what they had seen. They gave an accurate report of the land and the people that they saw. The evil report is when they said, we can't do it, even though God says we can. Their evil report, what the Bible records for all of eternity as the evil report that keeps them from the land of Israel or the land, what we know of now is the land of Israel, the land of Canaan back then. The thing that kept them out was they said, we can't. No matter what God said, no matter what's happened up to this point, we can't do it. How many things do you say you can't do? And why would we think that if we take a situation or come upon a situation and say we can't do it, why would we think that that's not evil when it's exactly the same thing they did and God called it evil? We don't think in those terms, do we? We should. Because the Bible says in Hebrews chapter 3 and verse 12, it says, Take heed, lest there be in you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. Now, the, the, the context of Hebrews 3 verse 12 is this story. It's saying, don't be like them. Well, then why are we like them? Why do we look at situations and say we can't do it because it's too big a job? What is too big a job for God? Chapter 14, and all the congregation lifted up their voice and cried, and the people wept that night. And all the children of Israel murmured against Moses and against Aaron and against the whole congregation, and the whole congregation said unto them, Would God that we had died in the land of Egypt. Yeah, that would have been better. Or would God we had died in the wilderness. Really? And wherefore has the Lord brought us into this land? To fall by the sword that our wives and our children should be a prey. Why did God do this to us? How many times do we hear that among Christians nowadays? Why did God do this to us? This is all part of what the Bible calls an evil heart of unbelief. Now I'm sorry if I'm getting too close to home this morning. (laughs) I know this is sacred ground for a lot of people. Because a lot of people like to look at their situation and say, God did this. But the Bible, again, says the Old Testament stories are examples to us of what to do and what not to do. Why did God do this to us? Were it not better for us to return to Egypt? Now, what was the case, what was the situation for them in Egypt? Weren't they slaves? Wouldn't it be better for us to go back into slavery? 
than to face a job that looks bigger than us? Really? Now, I want you to see something, folks. That is human nature. That is human nature. Most people, you can see this in politics, most people would rather be slaves than to take on a job that looks big. Then to take responsibility for themselves in their own lives, in their own circumstances, in their own situation. Most people, I hope you're not one of those, but most people would rather be slaves. Somebody would rather have other people take care of them, tell them what to do and, and provide for them. Because somehow in their thinking, being provided for, having somebody to tell them what to do so that they're not responsible to make decisions or whatever, is better somehow than taking responsibility for yourself. And folks, i got to tell you, most of the church world is in this condition. Most of the church world would rather have a denominational group tell them, God's not always for you. God won't always heal you. He won't always do good for you. Sometimes he'll make you sick. Sometimes he'll bring tragedy in your life because there's some greater purpose. Now, we can't possibly know what that greater purpose is. But God, from time to time, will take your money, steal your health, hurt your children, wreck your car, and who knows whatever else might take place. And you're supposed to just worship God in the middle of that and say, thank you, Lord, there is some greater purpose at work. As opposed to finding out what the Bible says, who you are in Christ, who God really is, and taking responsibility for choosing life for yourself. You know the biggest criticism we get? We in faith circles, so-called faith circles, I hate to call it that. There is no such thing as a word of faith movement. There is no such thing as faith circles. The fact of the, the, fact of the matter is, according to the Bible, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word. So anytime you hear the word preached, faith is a result. Which means if somebody doesn't have faith, they're not hearing the word. Which is most of the, the, the situation, most of the case in the body of Christ. Most people are preaching men's ideas and men's traditions and men's, ide- men's doctrines instead of what the Bible says. But most people, human nature is, I'd rather be controlled. And don't you think for a minute the devil won't take advantage of that. He'll be more than happy to control you. And they said one to another, let us make a captain and let us return to Egypt. We need another leader. That's the problem. We need another leader. Somebody that will take us back into slavery. Those aren't real hard to find. Then Moses and Aaron fell on their faces before all the assembly of the congregation of the children of Israel. And Joshua the son of Nun and Caleb the son of Jethuna, which were of them that searched the land, part of the twelve, two of the twelve rent or tore their clothes, and they spoke unto the, chil- the company of the children of Israel, saying, the land, the land which we pass through to search it, it is an exceeding good land. If the Lord delight in us, then he will bring us into this land, and he will give it to us, a land which flows with milk and honey. Only rebel ye not against the Lord, neither fear ye the people of this land, for they are bred for us, but their defense is departed from them, and the Lord is with us, fear them not. Now here's the, here's the, the real crux of the story. I'm going to read some more here, but there's the real crux of the story this morning that I want to ask you about. What in the world caused Joshua and Caleb 
to have a different outlook than the other ten. Everybody saw the same thing. Everybody's a ruler of their own tribe. You don't hear hardly anything about uh, Caleb, at least. You hear some about Joshua, but not much about Caleb prior to this point in time. But what caused these people to take a different position than everybody else? Now, I want you to notice what, what they do. They're tearing their clothes, imploring the people, begging them, don't rebel against God. Because the simple fact is when people make a choice, Remember what Moses says 40 years from this point in time. I call, I bear, um, uh, I call heaven and earth to record against you this day. The set before you life and death, blessing and cursing. Therefore choose life that you and your seed may live. He knows. They knew back then. It's still true today. If people have made a choice for death, no matter how religious they make it sound, no matter what excuse or justification they place on it, if somebody makes a choice for death, whether it's death, eternal death, rejecting Jesus, or rejecting some of the aspects of life, the life of God, and the work that Jesus has uh, accomplished for us, what he purchased for us on the cross, if people make that choice, you can't do anything about it. And it's one of the most heart-wrenching things that I've ever witnessed is to watch people choose death. But they're trying to encourage the people, trying to encourage the congregation. Don't do this. It's still not too late. Don't do this. Don't do this. God's with us. Their defense is departed from it. It doesn't matter how big the wall is around their city. God's with us. What caused Caleb and Joshua to see things from a different point of view? Caleb and Joshua are choosing life. But what did that mean? How did they do that? Verse 10. But all the congregation bade stone them with stones, and the glory of the Lord appeared in the tabernacle of the congregation before all the children of Israel. And the Lord said, okay, now we've heard what the ten spies said. We've heard what Caleb and Joshua said. Now we're hearing what the Lord says. And the Lord said unto Moses, how long will this people provoke me? And how long will it be ere or before they believe me? For all the signs which I have showed among them. Now I want you to understand something, folks. The Bible is going to say that the, the, the wrath of the fierce anger of God was kindled against them. Here's what makes God mad. God gets mad when people refuse to believe him. Now these are not, these are, are examples of his family. These are examples of Christians nowadays. Nobody could be a Christian in the Old Testament. You know that. So it, it can't, the, the type can't, can't follow exactly. But this is his family. These are the children of Abraham. These are not idol worshipers. These are not the people of Egypt. These are the people, the children of Abraham. These are people that ought to know him. And he said, look at the stuff that I've shown you. Look at the stuff that I've shown you. Now, we're going to go back and we're going to look a little bit further into the story. But this is about two and a half years from the point in time that the ten plagues started taking place in Egypt where God proved himself strong, led him through the, the, out of bondage of Egypt uh, through the Red Sea on dry land. He's shown them pillars of fire. He's shown them pillars of clouds. He's shown them plagues that came against Egypt and, and 
divided uh, uh, for them against Egypt and for them, provided for them. He's, they've seen water come out of the rock. They've seen manna show up in the morning. They've seen sign after sign after sign after sign after sign. And God says, how long will it be before these people believe? That's a good question for everybody to ask themselves. What's it going to take for me? I get this a lot with healing. People will come and say, Pastor Mike, I want you to pray for me. I want you to pray for my healing. And I'll always ask them, all right, what will it take for you to believe that you're healed by the stripes of Jesus? And typically their answer is, well, when I see a change in my body. Which means they're not believing according to what God said. They're trying to believe according to what they see and feel. Now, they don't know that in many cases until I ask them the question, what will it take for you to believe? Because they never consider that. And so they're operating in what they think is faith, but it's really unbelief. Not getting results and thinking it's God's fault for not answering their prayer. So the question is a real question. What's it going to take for you? Whatever area of life it is that you're facing trouble, what's it going to take for you to believe? Most people are in the same case as the, the ones that I just referred to about healing. Most people are saying, well, I believe God for finances and for prosperity when I see my bank book change. Really? That's what it's going to take for you to believe? That's not Bible faith. Bible faith believes in what God said, no matter what we see. So what's it going to take for you? That's what makes God mad. God said, how long will these people provoke me and how, how long is it going to be before they believe me? Verse 12, I will smite them with the pestilence and disinherit them. This is how mad God gets over that. And I will make of thee, he's talking to Moses, and I will make of thee a greater nation and mightier than they. Now, folks, I've got to tell you, if Moses is not the right kind of guy, this would be the point for him to say, that's a great idea, Lord. Instead of the children of Abraham, these can be the children of Moses. Then Moses said unto the Lord, if you do that, if you smite them, if you disinherit them, if you send the pestilence among them, destroy them. If you do that, then the Egyptians shall hear about it. For thou broughtest up this people in thy might from among them, and they will tell it to the inhabitants of this land. For they have heard that thou, Lord, art among this people, that thou, Lord, art seen face to face, and that the cloud standeth over them, and that thou goest before them by daytime in a pillar of cloud and in a pillar of fire by night. Now, if you kill all these people as one man, then the nations which have heard the name of the fame of thee will speak, saying, Because the Lord was not able to bring the people into the land which he swear unto them, therefore he has slain them in the wilderness. In other words, he said, Lord, if you do that, everybody's going to say that it's because you weren't strong enough to make this thing work out. Now, I want you to notice something else. Moses realizes that all the other nations are hearing what happened in Egypt. Keep that in mind. Moses knows that the fame of the Lord has traveled. It's been about two and a half years since the plague started in Egypt, since Moses first went to Pharaoh, said, let my people go. And he knows in those two and a half years, not only had the, the news of the plagues traveled, but also the news of the, the, um, uh, the Red Sea, the parting of the Red Sea in, on, on dry ground for Israel. And then they comes back together and destroying Pharaoh's army, which happened about two years uh, well, two and a, two years and several months before this point in time. He knows that news has traveled. 
Can I ask you a question? Why don't the ten spies know that? See, the ten spies said, we're on our own side as grasshoppers, and that's the way they see us too. Moses says, no, word's traveled. We're going to find out 40 years later when they do go into the promised land, when Rahab the harlot takes in the two spies that represent Caleb and Joshua, that go into the city of Jericho to spy it out, she says, we've been afraid of you guys for 40 years. We've been wondering where you were. You came right to the edge of our city. We thought, oh, my goodness, we're done for. And then you went wandering around for 40 years. What happened? How does Moses know that and they don't? Verse 17. Because of this, Lord, because this is what people will say, and now I beseech thee, let the power of my Lord be great according as thou hast spoken, saying, the Lord is long-suffering and of great mercy. Forgiving iniquity and transgression and by no means clearing the guilty. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children into the third and fourth generation. Pardon, I beseech thee, the iniquity of this people according unto the greatness of thy mercy. Not justice. You're justified in killing these folks, wiping them out. But operate according to your mercy. As thou hast forgiven this people, from, even as thou hast forgiven this people from Egypt until now. And the Lord said, said, I have pardoned according to my word. But as truly as I live, all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord. Because all these men which have seen my glory and my miracles, which I did in Egypt and in the wilderness, and have tempted me now these ten times, that means ten people. That just mean ten events. It means these ten people. It represents these ten people. And have not hearkened to my voice, surely they shall not see the land which I swear unto their fathers, neither shall any of them that provoked me see it. Verse 24, please notice verse 24. But my servant Caleb, because he had another spirit within, with him, and has followed me fully, him will I bring into the land whether he went, whether unto he went, and his seed shall possess it. Please notice he singles Caleb out for one reason, and that's because Caleb had a different spirit. Now, what do we know about Caleb? One thing we know about Caleb, we know two things about him during this story, the things that we've already read. First, over in chapter 13, he stilled the people and said, let us go up and take the land. We're well able to possess it. Then he was with Joshua in chapter 14, tearing his clothes, saying, don't rebel against God. We can take these people. We can take this land. Their defense has departed from them. The Lord is with us. And God singles him out and says, because my servant Caleb had a different Spirit with him. A different spirit with him. Verse 25. Now the Amalekites and the Canaanites dwell in the valley. Tomorrow, here's God's instruction to them. Tomorrow turn you and get you into the wilderness by the way of the Red Sea. And the Lord spake unto Moses and to Aaron saying, How long shall I bear with this evil congregation? Folks, I want you to understand. The Bible says the mercy of the Lord endures forever. It does not mean God is happy the whole time. Now, I don't know about you, but I want to make him happy. I don't want to be one of the people that he's putting up with because of his mercy, because he has to. And that seems to be the the case here, doesn't it? How long shall I bear with this evil congregation which murmur against me? 
I have heard the murmurings of the children of Israel, which they murmur against me. Say unto them, Moses, tell them this. Say unto them, as truly as I live. That's the second time that phrase is used in this chapter. And it literally means this. Think about it from this standpoint, and I'll tell you what it means. What does it mean, as truly as I live? When God, the uncreated one, the creator of the universe, no beginning, no end. When God says, as truly as I live, what does that mean? How true is it that God lives? It's absolutely true. When the earth is gone, God will still live. Before the earth came, God lived. When God says, as truly as I live, he's saying, this is something that's eternal. This is something that never changes. This is it. One translation says, it is the oracle of God. An oracle of God simply means this. It is an unchanging law. So God is saying, as truly as I live, here's an eternal and unchanging law. He said it before in verse uh, 21. As truly as I live, here's an unchanging law. Here's something I'm saying that you and nobody else will ever change. All the earth shall be filled with the glory of God. I kind of like that promise seeing the way the world's going. Not only that, but the Bible says in Ephesians chapter 4 that Jesus is coming back for a glorious church. So that tells me, just simple reasoning tells me that the glory of God is going to be seen in the church in such a way that all the earth is going to be filled with the glory of the Lord before Jesus comes back. Second thing he says is in verse 28. Here's another eternal and unchanging law. As truly as I live, saith the Lord, as you have spoken in my ears, so will I do to you. As you have spoken in my ears, so shall I do to you. In other words, the unchanging eternal law of God is, you will have what you say. Which is exactly the principle that Jesus used in Mark chapter 11 when he cursed the fig tree and explained to the disciples how he did it. Mark chapter 11, verse 23. Whosoever shall say unto this mountain... Be thou removed and be thou cast into the sea and shall not doubt in his heart. That means say anything to the contrary. But shall believe in his heart that those things which he saith shall come to pass. He shall have whatsoever he saith. How are we supposed to believe from our heart that what we say is going to come to pass? Because God says it's an eternal and unchanging law. Bless people's hearts. They get on radio and they get on TV and they complain about those of us that talk about confession. Those of us that preach confession. All those confession folks. God seems to be one of those confession folks. As truly as I live, saith the Lord, as you have spoken in my ear, so shall I do unto you. Notice he didn't say, according to as your church believes. According to your denominational teachings, so shall I do unto you. No. As you have spoken in my ears, so shall I do to you. Well, they already have. He's not asking them to say something else. They've already spoken. They had their say before God ever had his. So he says, tell them, Moses, their carcasses shall fall in this wilderness. Why? Because they said, in verse 2 of chapter 14, would God we had died in this wilderness. Okay, your carcasses shall fall in the wilderness. 
Proverbs, uh, is it Proverbs 18? I think it is. It's in Proverbs anyway. It says death and life are in the power of the tongue. Is that 1821? Is that it? Death and life are in the power of the tongue? Death and life are in the power of the tongue. They that love it shall eat the fruit thereof. One translation says it this way. Death and life are in the power of the tongue. Men have died for saying the wrong things. This is a good example. A whole generation died for saying the wrong thing. What was their evil report? What did they say? We can't do what God said we can do. It would be better for us to die in the wilderness. Okay. We can't take the promised land. We can't take the land God said is ours. We'd be better off dying in the wilderness. Okay. We just can't believe God for healing. I guess I'll die with this sickness. Okay. I just don't ever seem to get ahead in life. Okay. Pastor Mike, I just can't. Okay. That's the unchanging law of God, folks. As you have spoken in the ears of God, so will he do unto you. Your carcasses shall fall in this wilderness, and all that were numbered of you according to your whole number from 20 years old and upward, which have murmured against me. Everybody from age 20 and up dies in the wilderness. Doubtless you shall not come into the land concerning which I swear to make you dwell therein, save or accept. Here's the two exceptions, Caleb the son of Jephunneh and Joshua the son of Nun. But your little ones, which you said would be a prey. You remember over in uh, uh, verse 3? Wherefore has the Lord, why did the Lord bring us into this land to fall by the sword and that our wives and our children should be a prey? Why did God do this to us? Now God's answering that. He said, but your little ones, verse 31, which you said would be a prey, them will I bring in. Now, please notice what he's saying. You're saying this is too big for you. I'll bring your kids in. You think your kids have enough strength to get in there? You think this is not too big for them? I'll take them in. Folks, what God is saying is, you thought this was about you and your strength? Seriously? Is it ever about you and your strength? When it comes to the things of God and and the impossible things being done, the impossible things that God has promised being done and realized in our life, is it ever really about you other than just believing? Did you get yourself into heaven? Were you strong enough to get yourself into salvation? You just believed, didn't you? You just accepted what Jesus did, didn't you? So how much of it had to do with you just believing, just choosing life? Verse 32, oh, well, I didn't finish verse 31. But your little ones, which you said should be a prey, them will I bring in, and they shall know the land which you have despised. Please notice that when they said we can't do what God said we could do, when they said we can't take the land that God said he'd give us, that's what God said is despising the land. That means, therefore, if we put it into a New Testament context, that means people that say that healing was not bought for and paid for by the blood of Jesus, that we were not healed by the stripes of Jesus, that means they're despising healing. That means when people say that financial well-being, provision, prosperity, and so forth 
is not part of what Jesus died for. That means they're despising provision. See, anything you take a side against with God is something that you despise. Now, God uses pretty harsh terms. He uses those terms nowadays and people say, why are you judging me? That seems to be a favorite term nowadays. Well, who are you to judge me? Let me ask you a question. Who is God to judge them? The answer is the same in both cases, and that is the word of God is true and heaven and earth will pass away, but it'll never fail. The word judges you. It's not God judging them. It's his word. It's not me judging that people despise healing. It's the word. The word of God is our judge. You either take sides for it or take sides against it. You either choose life or you choose death. There is no middle ground. A failure to choose life is a choice for death. There's a lot of people in this story that die in the wilderness that never said a word. But they went along with the crowd. They didn't stand up against it. They didn't take a stand against what was going on. They just joined in their voices to cry and weep that night along with everybody else. They got swept along with the unbelief of others. Verse 30. Two, but as for you, your carcasses, they shall fall in this wilderness. And your children shall wander in the wilderness 40 years and bear your whoredoms until your carcasses be wasted in the wilderness. That's some future for your kids, isn't it? It amazes me how sometimes parents, how they seem to fail to recognize. They, maybe they don't think, I don't know. But parents that, that, that fail to recognize how their lifestyle is going to impact their kids. Folks, i got to tell you, I understand Caleb and Joshua tearing their clothes. I can't afford that many clothes, but I understand what they're doing. Verse 34, after the number of the days in which you search the land, even 40 days, each year for a day shall you bear your iniquities, even 40 years, and shall know my breach of promise. Again, the Jewish Bible, complete Jewish Bible says this, the breach of promise you shall know what it is to oppose me. You'll experience for 40 years what it is to oppose me. I, the Lord, have said, I will surely do it unto all this evil congregation. They that are gathered together against me in this wilderness, they shall be consumed, and there they shall die. And the men which Moses sent to search the land who returned and made all the congregation to murmur against him, by bringing up the slander upon the land, even those men that did bring up the evil report under, under, upon the land died by the plague before the Lord. They died right in front of everybody. But Joshua the son of Nun and Caleb the son of Jephunneh, which were of the men that li- went to search the land, lived still. Only ones of the twelve, only two of the twelve that lived. The ten that brought up the evil report that caught, that brought up what the Bible says defines as slander upon the land. Remember, God said, this is a land I'm bringing you into. It's a good land flowing with milk and honey. It's the promised land. Just the fact that they spoke against it and led the children of Israel to believe that they couldn't do it because of the way they lifted up their voice, the words that they spoke, they died right in front of everybody. Only Caleb and Joshua are still alive. 
Ten, fe- ten people fall dead right there in front of everybody. Caleb and Joshua standing there looking at each other and looking at the people. Now, if you were one of that crowd, what would you be thinking? I know exactly what I'd be thinking. Oh, snap. Maybe this wasn't such a good idea after all. And Moses told these things unto the children of Israel, and the people mourned greatly. And they rose up early in the morning. Please notice, here's the saddest part of the story to me. And they rose up early in the morning and got them into the top of the mountain saying, Lo, we be here, and we will go up into the place which the Lord has promised, for we have sinned. We were wrong yesterday. And Moses said, Wherefore now do you transgress the commandment of the Lord, but it shall not prosper? In other words, he's saying, Why do you continue to disobey God? In other words, God said as a result of what they said in the position they took yesterday, God said, okay, you'll die in the wilderness, everybody from age 20 and up. The next morning they get up and they say, we're ready to go now, Moses. We'll go. We'll go take the land. We were wrong yesterday. Those 10 people dying, that kind of got our attention. We don't really want to die in the wilderness. So we're ready to go. And Moses says, it's not going to work. It's not going to work. It is so sad when you see people that have missed their opportunity. Because there comes a point where it's too late. Now, in most cases for Christians, it's not a lifelong thing. It's not something that you can't turn around down the road. But there is a time. There is a window to believe God. And if you pass up on that window, you'll suffer the consequences of your actions. And then after that window, is uh, that time period is done that thing passes or whatever, then you can get them back on board. But it's so sad to see the situations that people put themselves into because they refuse to accept God's word. So Moses said, it's not going to work. Verse 42, go not up, for the Lord is not among you. Now, from the outside, it looks like they're doing good things, doesn't it? They're going to take the land. We're going to go take the promised land. But God's not with them. And you see so many people that are trying to change the Word of God, trying to get the, 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 the results that the Bible says you can have, but doing it their own way. Go not up, for the Lord is not among you, that you be not smitten before your enemies. If you go, you're going to be defeated. For the Amalekites and the Canaanites are there before you, and you shall fall by the sword because you turned away from the Lord. Therefore, the Lord will not be with you. Folks, this stuff is not a game. God said what he really meant. I've set before you life and death, blessing and cursing. Choose life. Well, not quite yet, Pastor Mike. I'll choose life tomorrow. Really? Is that going to work for you tomorrow? It didn't for them. But they presumed, verse 44, but they presumed to go up into the hilltop. Nevertheless, the ark of the covenant of the Lord and Moses did not departed not from out of the camp. Then the Amalekites came down and the Canaanites which dwell in that hill and smote them and discomfited them even unto Hormah. This is the first defeat that the children of Israel have ever experienced. First one. You know why? Because they tried to do it on their own. You get people trying to get the blessings of God without acting on the word of God. 
You get people that want the power of God as a result of prayer, but they deny the power of God in the Holy Spirit. They don't want to do it God's way. They want to do it their way. Folks, so much of the denominationalism and denominational teaching is man trying to do God's things their way. And it doesn't work. God's not in man's way. He's in his way. And he gives you the opportunity to choose life. Now, I want to bring back something real quickly. I want to run through this real, I know I'm out of time, but I'm going to run through this real hurriedly. I want you to see back in verse 24, Numbers chapter 14, verse 24, but my servant Caleb, because he had another spirit with him and had followed me fully, him will I bring into the land where thereunto he went and his seed shall possess it. What caused Caleb to have a different attitude than the other ten spies that went in with him? What caused him to have this different spirit? In other words, what caused Caleb to choose life? What was it that made the difference between him and the others? Well, in order to know this, we've got to go back and see what these guys knew. You've got to go back to the beginning of the story. The beginning of the story is when Moses starts talking to God in the burning bush or vice versa. God starts talking to Moses out of the burning bush. God says to Moses, let me run through some things real quickly. Exodus chapter 3, verse uh, 8. Here's God speaking to Moses. In the burning bush, he says, and I am come down to deliver them, talking about Israel out of the hand of the Egyptians, and to bring them up out of that land into a good land and a large land, unto a land flowing with milk and honey, and unto the place of the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites. In other words, God told Moses before he ever even went to Pharaoh and said, let my people go. He told Moses, the land that I have promised you, that which is called the promised land, is a land that there are enemies that live in. The Amalekites are there, the Amorites are there, the Canaanites are there, the Hivites are there, whoever else he says. Rule number one, the promised land is inhabited. So then why is it a surprise? Two and a half years later when the children of Israel, the ten spies go in and say, oh, there's people that live in there. Son of a gun. Who knew? Look with me over to to, uh, Exodus chapter 6. Exodus chapter 6, I'll start reading in verse 6. Here's God speaking to Moses. Wherefore say unto the children of Israel, I am the Lord and will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians and I will rid you of their bondage. This is after Moses goes to Pharaoh and says, let my people go. And before the plagues ever start, Pharaoh says, I don't know your God. And if your people have uh, have enough time on their hands to want to go worship your God, then you got too much time. Go gather your own straw and still make the same number of bricks. Children of Israel are really upset about that. God says to Moses, here's what you tell them. I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will rid you of their bondage, and I will redeem you with a stretched out arm and with great judgments. And I will take you to me for a people, and I will be to you a God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God, which bringeth you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. God's telling them what's going to happen before it ever happens. Verse 8, And I will bring you in unto the land concerning which I did swear to give to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob, and I will give it to you for a heritage. I am the Lord. He tells them, here's the promised land. The promised land is what he promised Abraham. The promised land includes God's deliverance and so forth. Look in chapter 13. These are things that Moses is telling the children of Israel. They know these things. They've been hearing about these things from the beginning. Chapter 13, notice verse 3. 
And Moses said unto the people, remember this day. This is uh, after the, the uh, Passover instructions is given to Moses. The ten plagues, or nine of the ten plagues have taken place. The death of the firstborn is about to take place, and they're preparing for it. And Moses says, this is not only something for now, but it's something to tell your children about, teach your children about. Verse 3. And Moses said unto the people, Remember this day in which you came out from Egypt, out of the house of bondage. For by strength of hand the Lord has brought you out. He's talking about the miracles. He's talking about the plagues against Egypt. From this place there shall no leavened bread be eaten. This day came you out in the month of Abib. And it shall be when the Lord shall bring you into the land of the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites and the Hivites and the Jebusites, which he swear unto thy fathers to give thee a land flowing with milk and honey, that thou shalt keep this service in this month. Verse 11, he says something similar. And it shall be when the Lord shall bring thee into the land of the Canaanites, as he swear unto thee and to thy fathers, and shall give it to you. Look at chapter 14. Chapter 14, verses 19 and 20. Uh, better back up to verse 18. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten me honor upon Pharaoh, upon his chariots, and upon his horsemen. And the angel of the Lord went before the camp of Israel and removed and went behind them. And the pillar of the cloud went from before their face and stood behind them, between Pharaoh's army that's chasing in after him at the edge of the Red Sea. Verse 20, and it came between the camp of the Egyptians and the camp of Israel, and it was a cloud and darkness to them, the Egyptians, but it gave light by night to the, to these, to Israel, so that the one came not near to the other all the night. Finally, look with me to chapter 33. Now, chapter 33 is after they come out of Egypt. Moses goes into the mountain, brings down the Ten Commandments, comes back, finds out they've been, uh, they said, well, we, Moses, we thought you died up there. Nobody could live through what we saw on top of that mountain. And so they're, they've made the golden calf and they're doing all the other stuff. Moses breaks the commandments and now he's talking to him as a result. And the Lord said unto Moses, depart and go up hence, thou and the people which thou hast brought up out of the land of Egypt, into the land which I swear unto Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob, saying, unto thy seed I will give it. And I will send the angel before thee. Now remember the angels, what we just read in chapter 14, that protected them from Pharaoh, right? So here's what the people hear. These are the things that people are hearing about this promised land. And I will send an angel before thee and will drive them out, or drive out the Canaanite, the Amorite, the Hittite, the Perizzite, the Hivite, and the Jebusite. Unto a land flowing with milk and honey, for I will not go up in the midst of thee, for thou art a stiff-necked people, lest I consume thee in the way. In other words, he's saying... You are really wrong to do this golden calf stuff. But that doesn't change God's promise to bring you into the promised land. And the angel will do it. Remember the angel that protected you when Pharaoh tried to chase after you at the Red Sea? That same angel that protected you, you didn't have to fight against Pharaoh. You didn't have to fight against the Egyptian army. That angel that protected you, that angel will drive out these other nations from before you. So, if you've been hearing these things, uh, my question, really, and I, I mean this seriously. I know it may sound funny, but I mean this seriously. Why in the world, when Egypt was destroyed, Pharaoh's army was destroyed in the Red Sea, immediately coming out on dry land on the other side, why are the children of Israel not talking to Moses, saying, Moses, who's next? Tell us about this land again. 
What's up with this? I remember you saying the land flows with milk and honey. Who lives there? You said the Amorites or somebody. Who lives there? I'd want to report. I'd want to recount it. Tell us again about this. They're not as strong as Egypt, are they? Well, nobody on the face of the earth was as strong as Egypt. What are they afraid of people that are less than God's already defeated? Caleb wasn't. Caleb is taking these things and taking them to heart. Caleb is recognizing all the things that I'm posing to you as questions. He's recognizing, wait a minute, what do we care if they've got walls around them for? We thought the Red Sea was an obstacle. Didn't turn out to be such a big deal. If God can part the sea, he can probably get us through a wall. He's taking all these things to heart. Let me close with this. Turn with me over to Isaiah chapter 43. Isaiah chapter 43, I want to read verses 25 and 26 to you. I'm talking about choosing life, folks. We see that the way you choose life is not only to be obedient to God's word, to take God's word at face value, whatever he said we can do, agree with it, yeah, we can do it. Do we know how we can do it? No. Do we see a way for us to do it? Not really. In many cases, you won't have a clue. But if God said it's yours, it's yours. If you need help and instruction on how to obtain what is yours, that's one thing. But taking sides against it and saying, no, no, that can't be right. It, it, it is such an aggravating and frustrating thing for me to see so many Christians taking sides against God's word. You got churches, you got church groups, you got denominations, you got whatever name you want to attach on things, that are saying, well, yeah, the Bible says that Jesus took our infirmities and bore our sicknesses, but that's spiritually. Really? I've got respect for somebody that says, you know, I don't have much experience with that. I'm really not sure about that. I've got a lot of respect for that person. But for the person that takes the position, well, here's what the Bible says, but here's it can't mean that. So it must mean something else. I have no respect whatsoever for that person. Now, I'm, I'm mindful that the Bible says, who art thou to judge another man's servant? It's not up to me to judge. And boy, it's a good thing. But I can say with all honesty, with pure heart, I have no respect for somebody that takes sides against God's word. If it's a matter of ignorance, okay, you can cure ignorance. You can cure ignorance with knowledge. But if it's just taking sides against God's word, because that's the position that you've been taught, that's the same place as the ten spies and the children of Israel. Just because you were told something doesn't mean it's right. I want you to notice that the congregation of Israel followed the majority report. And it was wrong. You remember in Isaiah 53, it starts off in the, the Messianic chapter saying, Who has believed our report? Whose report is it talking about? It's talking about God's report. Who's going to believe God's report? That's what made Isaiah, that's what made Caleb of a different spirit. He believed God's report. 
He believed what God said no matter what he saw in the promised land, no matter how tall the walls were or how strong the armies of the people were that they spied out or whatever else they saw. He still believed what God said, and here's why. Verse uh, Isaiah 43, verses 25 and 26. Here's God speaking not only for his people Israel. They had a promise of uh, redemption through Jesus. We've got an accomplished fact of redemption. I, even I, even I am he that blotteth out thy transgressions for mine own sake and will not remember thy sins. Well, we know the fulfillment of that is Jesus. Jesus' work on the cross is resurrection of the dead, right? We are made the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus because God made him, Jesus, to be sin for us who knew no sin. So our transgressions have not just been blotted out in their case. Our transgressions have been removed once and for all because we've been made new creatures. Theirs could only be covered up. We've been made new in spirit. So what are we to do now that we're righteous before God? Verse 26. Here's God speaking first person. Put me in remembrance. Let us plead together. Declare thou that thou mayest be justified. You know what that verse of Scripture is saying? It's saying because you are the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus, find a way to make the word work for you personally. Find a way for you to make your case before God. Other translations say prove your case in court. It's talking about God from his position inviting us. Bring me my word and show me why it belongs to you. Bring me my promise and tell me why it has to be yours. Why? Because he wants you to know what's yours. He wants you to take an active and a mature part in taking hold of his promises, taking hold of his word for your benefit. Put me in remembrance, God says. He didn't say come and beg and ask me to do something. He said put me in remembrance. Remind me of what I've said. Make your case as to why it's yours. Well, why is it yours? Because I'm in Christ. And the devil's going to say, but you don't deserve it. You messed up yesterday. That didn't take me out of Christ. This covenant blessing belongs to me because it was fulfilled in Jesus. Jesus redeemed me from the curse of the law that the blessing of Abraham might come upon me. It's mine because you made a covenant. It's not mine because I've been doing good lately. And it doesn't stop being mine if I've done, if I haven't done good lately. It's mine because I'm in Christ. It's mine because I'm in Christ. I got an email from a guy the other day that said, Pastor Mike, I'm having trouble praying personal things. You know, about the job, God giving me a job, the job that I need and job that I want. I, I've just never had confidence in praying for things like that. Here's, here's the answer. Put me in remembrance. Put me in remembrance. Father, I'm your child. You said what things soever I desire when I pray, believe that I receive them and I'll have them. You said if I abide in you and your words abide in me, I could ask what I will. Here's what I will. Here's what you said. Here's what I will. Now, I'm not talking about going contrary to something you know God already has in mind for your life. I'm not talking about that. I'm not talking about walking in opposition to an inward witness or the leading of God in any way. But if you know you're operating by the word of God, if you know that you're living by the word of God in your life, you have a strong confidence. The Bible says in Proverbs, it says, in the fear of the Lord is a strong confidence. Fear of the Lord means a doer of his word. Those of us that are doers of his word have strong confidence. We can go before the Lord and say, hey, here's what I need. 
I know that's a little different from the church ways of praying. The church way of praying is, oh, Lord, if in your great mercy you deem it possible to just look in my direction and give me a crumb of blessing. Where do we get that? Where did the church get that? God said, put me in remembrance. Let us plead together. That means I'll make my case, God will make his. Put me in remembrance. Declare thou that thou mayest be justified. You make your case for what the Bible says belongs to you. That's what Caleb did. That's exactly what Caleb did. Caleb took all the information that Moses had told the children of Israel about the promised land. And Caleb said, yeah, well, I see the same things that everybody else sees. I see the walls around the cities. I see the strong armies. Yeah, they're outnumbering us. There are more of them than there are with us. But God is on our side. God made a covenant with our forefathers, Abraham. Look at what he did in Egypt to get us out of there. What do we have to worry about? Let us go up at once and possess the land, for we are well able to overcome it. How are we going to do that, Joshua? I don't know, but God's with us. I'm not sure exactly how it's going to work. Well, how did it work? Forty years later, it worked by them carrying trumpets around those great walls they were so afraid of. They put the singers and the praisers out front. They brought the wall down with a shout and blowing trumpets. It was a new day in Israel's warfare. Yet the ten spies, those that are called strong men and deliverers, we're not able to do it. The men are greater than us, and we're in our own sight as grasshoppers. And so are we in their sight too. All you need is a trumpet. What are you worried about? You know what the problem was? The problem was for two years, they've been complaining about the land that they were going through. For two years, they've been complaining about a lack of water, no good food. Oh, if we could only go back to Egypt and get those leeks and garlics. <laughs> yeah. Boy, it's dinner time, isn't it? <laughs> leeks and garlics from Egypt. You know slave food's better than anything on the planet. They've been complaining about the land. They've been complaining about the conditions. They've been complaining about the circumstances, except for Caleb and Joshua. Every day they've been coming out saying, when can we get to our next battle? When can we get to the next people? We still remember what God did with the Red Sea and Pharaoh and his armies. And by now, everybody's heard about it. Remember, Moses said, word will get out. If you kill all these people, word will get out. Well, why wouldn't they think that word has already gotten out? It had. See, the devil wants to keep you in the dark about those things. He wants to tell you, oh, it's too tough. It's too tough. We didn't read this in, in uh, Exodus chapter, um, what is it? it must be around chapter 14, something like that, 14, 15, somewhere around there. It says that when God led them out of Egypt, they didn't take them through the land of the Philistines because they would be discouraged because of war. So the land that they're complaining about is the best route for them to take. I wonder if that's the case for you. I wonder if the things that you and I complain about and the problems that we encounter, if we could back up and look at the big picture, 
I wonder how many of us would see that this is the best land, the best way that we could go. And here we are complaining about how tough it is. Oh, bless our hearts, how tough it is. God said, put me in remembrance. Remind me of what I told you. That's what Caleb is doing. He's saying, we're well able to do it. Their defense has departed from them because God's with us. Who can stand against God? Yet the people are standing around saying, why did God bring us out here? Caleb and Joshua said, this is exactly the place for us to be. Let's go take the land. Well, they were delayed. The unbelief of the, of the congregation, the unbelief of the children of Israel delayed them for 40 years. But they did do what they said. Everybody in this story got exactly what they said. Caleb and Joshua said, we could take it. Ten spies said, we can't. They didn't. They fell dead right on the spot. Children of Israel said, it would be better for us to die in the wilderness. They did. Caleb and Joshua said, we're well able to overcome it. Forty years later, now they're 80 years old, they're still able to overcome it, and they did. That's the choosing life. That's the different spirit that God singles you out for. That's how you choose life, folks. You choose life by taking sides with God's word. You choose life by reminding him of what he said and making it yours personally. Let us plead together. Another translation says, let us reason together. Take the word of God and make it yours. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for the privilege that we have to choose life. Thank you, Father, that there's nothing that's too hard for you. We thank you, Lord, that life and death is in the power of the tongue. We move from death, spiritual death, into life, eternal life, through the operation of our mouth, the operation of our lips, the operation of our tongue. We believed in our heart what the Word says about Jesus going to the cross, and we confessed Him as our Lord and Savior, and it causes us to be born again. In the same way, Father, every time we speak Your Word in the face of adversity and circumstance, we thank You, Father, that it brings the power of God to bear on the scene. Thank You, Lord that your word is always true. We determine, Father, we purpose to put you in remembrance. We thank you, Father, that you don't deal with us as little children, as baby children who have nothing to do with the, the, the course of our lives, but you deal with us as sons and daughters who are able to come to you and bring you your word and say, Father, here's what you made a covenant with us for. We are able to plead our case with you. We serve you, Lord. Therefore, the promises are ours. We're in Christ. We're part of your family. We're able to justify ourselves, Father, not on our own works or our own behavior, but to justify ourselves according to your word. For by your word we are made righteous, eternally righteous. Father, what a privilege it is to serve you. What a privilege it is to live according to your word. What a privilege, Father, to live by faith. We purpose, Father, that we will never have an evil heart of unbelief. We'll never take sides against your word. Show us what we need to show us, Father. Teach us what we need to know so that we can always be doers thereof. For it's in the precious and holy name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Amen. Praise the Lord.